Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Who Knew, a history podcast. I'm your host for the day, Mr. Rickson, and with me, as always, is Mrs. Allgood. Hello, Mrs. Allgood. Welcome back. I I know that when uh, folks hear this episode, they will also be getting a bonus episode. I want to thank again my guest, my guest host, uh, Mr. Meehan from Bishop O'Connell, the English department, for his really interesting Vince McMahon episode. But I'm glad to see that you're 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 back online. I know that you were having some some uh, some internet connectivity problems this morning, so I'm glad that glad the technology's working for you now. You and me both, friend. I, I got to tell you, though, I had quite a day with no internet, which also means no Netflix or any of our other streaming stuff. Also, the cable was down because apparently those are one and the same these days. I had no idea. So I, um, I pressed some flowers. I crocheted a doily. I learned how to dry clean. I was basically living in the Victorian era today. I had a very productive day. Um, I was only a step away from making some weird hair jewelry, uh, but we'll save that for another episode. We're going to focus on somebody from the early 20th century. So, and when you, again, we, we've we sort of been coming up with a running list of topics and people, and we were kind of jumping around with a couple of ideas and you suggested this person, and I think both of us thought, well, is this in fact a real person? And it turns out it is, and there's actually a great deal of history around it. So who is our person or topic for today's episode? Well, yeah, I would also like to thank Ms. Sensabaugh for um, recommending this person as a topic of study. I'm, I'm really interested for getting to get into this. Also, for anyone listening out there, if you're a student at O'Connell, you are more than welcome to send anyone that you would like to hear about. Um, but anyway, um, I'd like to go ahead and drop this person into history first. Mr. Rickson, it's the year 1906. Theodore Roosevelt is in his second term as president. Upton Sinclair's The Jungle has been published, which depicts the deplorable labor conditions of Chicago's meatpacking industry. The San Francisco earthquake killed over 2,000 people and left over 300,000 people homeless. And in the summer of 1906, a wealthy family started suffering in New York's Oyster Bay from a mysterious outbreak of the poor man's disease called typhoid. Today, we'll be learning about Mary Mallon, better known to history as Typhoid Mary, which, as I learned, is not just a weird nickname that we call women who lived in the late 1800s, which I just thought that was a weird, mean stereotype. No, Typhoid Mary was a real person, um, and I had a lot of fun learning about her. I also want to give a quick disclaimer about my research today. Uh, this episode includes a lot of science, which I am not really good at, so I try really hard to explain science things and say things that have like Latin medical terms. Um, there's also a surprising amount of uh, poop and vomit in this episode. So if you are having dinner, you might want to go listen to what's his name, McMahon, the wrestling guy today. Uh, Mary. <laughs> I'm sure the audience will appreciate the, the disclaimer about, uh, you know, sort of when, when they choose to listen to this, to this episode or not. That's a, uh, that's good. We, you know, we're, we're about public safety and public disclaimers when it comes to, when it comes to who knew. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah, just, 
just looking out. Oh boy. Um, but anyway, let's let's get into uh, to Mary Mallon here. Not really. There's not much that's known about her early life, except that she was born in either 1868 or 1869. The records are unclear. In County Tyrone, in what's now Northern Ireland, which uh, was actually one of if not the poorest counties in Ireland at the time. So she's coming from like a very impoverished background and she's part of this new wave of um, immigrants coming in the late 19th, early 20th century to find economic opportunity in the United States. Uh, so she immigrates from Ireland with her sister in 1883 and she starts to work as a cook for wealthy families in the New York area. Um, some like on Park Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, she works for a few families in upstate New York or in like the Hamptons area. So she like she's working for super wealthy families and she is renowned for being like a good successful cook. And it's after about two to three weeks at this this position in upstate New York that the family she started working for got super sick with typhoid. And then she was unable to work because when families got sick from an outbreak like this, they would fire all of their hired staff, like with their maids and the cooks and the servants and stuff, and she would just have to move on to the next job. Um, so that's where things kind of start to get interesting. So before we go any further, what exactly is typhoid fever? I mean, I've I, I, this... This this disease comes up in a lot of early American history, and I've, I've read it, you know, and it's often referred to as either typhoid or typhus or typhoid fever. So what can you give us a little background as to what exactly this disease is and what its symptoms are? Yeah, so typhoid, that's really, it's its no funny business. It's pretty gross. Um, it's caused by a bacterial infection called Salmonella typhi. Uh, it's spread by consuming infected food or water or coming in contact with a sick, a sick person's feces or urine, specifically. Uh, if you come down with typhus or typhoid fever or typhoid, whatever you want to call it, uh, the symptoms include vomiting, diarrhea, a particularly nasty, like, distinguishable rash, which appears on your chest. Um, and if you don't have treatment at that point, then you start having intestinal bleeding and then blood clots from the intestinal bleeding. And then your abdomen can get distended. But apparently that's like when uh, air, like gas or a fluid just kind of accumulates in your abdomen and it causes it to expand. So you get like super, super bloated and it's very painful. So it just sounds pretty disgusting. Um, but here's the thing, though. Uh, you can actually carry typhoid, which is a super dangerous disease, without showing any symptoms. And you can still infect other people even not knowing that you're sick. So that's pretty bonkers. In the early 1900s, I want to keep us in context here because that's like where I was having like kind of the most interesting like thought moments of the whole time. I was like, how does this happen? In the early 1900s, typhoid was mostly viewed as something that only impacted like poor urban immigrant communities. So like where someone like Mary Mallon would have been living in New York, like think like in a tenement setting because the sanitation was pretty poor. There's really no indoor plumbing. So it, it's not that hard for water sources to get contaminated in a, in a place like that. So 
It's definitely seen as a poor person's disease. Um, a vaccine was actually invented in 1896, and it was super uh, helpful to the American army at this time, and it was really helpful to soldiers, but it never became widespread or just seen as valuable to be used among the general public. Uh, but by the early 1900s, the mortality rate from typhoid was about 10% of the people that contracted it would actually die. Um, so yeah, typhoid at this time in the early 1900s is pretty nasty. So she's kind of moving around a bit. So let's let's sort of go to the 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 time in Manhattan. So now she's gone from upstate New York to Manhattan. Yeah. So I left off. She had um, she was working at this job in upstate New York, and the whole family got typhoid. So she was forced to leave her job and go start working somewhere else. So she moved to Manhattan. She was working in this penthouse for this nice family in Manhattan, and the whole family got sick again. Their laundress actually died. Um, so just like last time, she had to move along. Um, but like, <laughs> here's just one of these moments where I'm like. Here in the 21st century, like we we know what germs are, we know what antibiotics are. So we like, as me as someone in the 21st century, like it's pretty easy to look back and say, hmm, this looks pretty fishy that everyone that this woman's working for is just falling dead from typhoid. Like that is just so weird. Uh, but it's the early 1900s and we really don't know a lot about this disease yet. Uh, Germ theory is still a theory, and there are still plenty of people, particularly uneducated people like Mary Mallon, that don't know what germ theory is. Typhoid is also particularly common in New York City, especially in these poor communities. Mary's like, you know, like she's used to seeing people get typhoid and die throughout her life in New York City. And she's basically just like, man, I keep having terrible luck, like moving in with all these families that keep getting typhoid. So she just kind of keeps moving along. And she actually takes three more jobs in New York City. And the same thing just keeps happening to her. And she's like, man, I can't catch a break. It's bonkers. <laughs> so let's go back to at, at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that a family got sick in Oyster Bay. How does that Oyster Bay incident connect back to typhoid fever and Mary Mallon's story? When when do these two things start to kind of intersect? Okay, so yeah, let's definitely highlight Oyster Bay's geography for a minute. Um, Oyster Bay, it's on New York's Long Island, and it's like a super popular like summer vacation destination for New York's like super wealthy elite people, like the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Roosevelts, like that's that's who's going here. So like it's as far away from like the New York City tenements of the Lower East Side as you could possibly be. So the idea that typhoid is going to come to a place like this with like a pretty low population density and just a bunch of rich people, like that's insane. That shouldn't be happening. In 1906, Mary takes a job working for the family of Charles Henry Warren. He's a very prominent New York City banker. He loaned money to people like the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers. Like that's how rich this guy is. And uh, so within two to three weeks of Mary being hired by the Warren family, 10 of the 11 members of this family were hospitalized with typhoid. Um, and basically they're like, we're rich. We don't have to deal with diseases. I don't understand what's going on. And at the time, there were actually only three practicing doctors in Oyster Bay. And they're like, huh, that's weird that typhoid is going on. This doesn't happen here. Uh, so just like every other time, Mary gets 
you know, let go, like everyone else working for this family staff and they she has to go find employment somewhere else. Um, so that should be the end of it. But the Warren family is still like really weirded out and also like kind of offended and embarrassed that their family got typhoid. Like that's just not what rich people have to deal with. So they actually hire a freelance sanitation engineer, which like what a job title. Uh, his name is Dr. Soper, and I want to say his name because he'll be coming up a lot throughout the rest of the episode. Uh, they hire him and they give him a boatload of money to track down the source of this infection and end it. And they do this because Dr. Soper is actually like one of the leading typhoid specialists in the United States at this time. So the first place that he goes to check is all the water sources and the plumbing in the house because typhoid is usually spread by a contaminated water source. So he goes to check all the pipes and he um, expects to find contaminated water, but finds that it's all super clean. So his next thing that he starts to do is he starts looking into the backgrounds of all the people that were working for the Warren family. And he very quickly singles out Mary Mallon, who was hired three weeks before this outbreak took place. Uh, but Dr. Soper knew that Salmonella typhi has a three-week incubation period, meaning if you contract it, uh, it takes about three weeks for that uh, bacteria to turn into something that we recognize as typhoid. And Mary was only at this job for three weeks before the outbreak happened. So, wow, looks like we got our girl. So um, Dr. Soper starts to look into Mary's employment history and he links her to all of these other families that she's been working for that uh, had contracted uh, typhoid. She was linked to seven other cases of people getting typhoid while she was working as their cook. But by the time that people had came to investigate the family's illness, Mary had already moved on to the next house. So no one ever kind of made that connection uh, because a lot of these wealthy people have several servants. So a total of 22 people had reported cases of typhoid, including one girl who had died, uh, like a, a five-year-old child. Uh, and they were all linked to Mary Mallon. So Soper believes that Mary is a carrier and an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid, which isn't still totally understood at the, this time. And that's really important to remember. So asymptomatic carriers basically have the disease in their body cells and they can have it for years and years and years, meaning that the bacteria is still coming out of like their poop and stuff. Um, so if you're not washing your hands, you can give someone typhoid. So that's kind of a problem. So so it seems like at this point, we sort of, if you, if you think about it from like a scientific perspective, so Dr. Soper has his hypothesis that Mary Mallon is spreading typhoid fever. And, and like you said before, there's enough evidence where she goes and she works for these families. And then about three weeks later, right, the incubation period, the whole family comes down with typhoid. And at this point, he is he's basically pursuing this as a case. But I know that in doing my research, and you noted noted this as well, there are actually some questions about his tactics and ethics in in sort of finding her. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah. So, okay. I want to start by saying at this point, Dr. Soper like literally goes on the hunt for Mary Mallon. Like there are actual foot chases involved between Mary Mallon, Dr. Soper and like the New York city police officers and health inspectors. Like it's pretty bad. Foot, um, sorry, what, so foot, foot chases is in like, they literally chase this woman down the streets of New York. Yeah, like they're literally chasing this woman down and she's like, leave me alone. And I think like it's also so important at this point to understand just kind of where both of these people, Dr. Soper and Mary Mallon, are coming from. Mary Mallon, let's remember, she is a middle-aged, single, uneducated immigrant woman living in the tenements of the Lower East Side. Like, she is coming from kind of like the lowest of the low. And she really doesn't understand a lot about germ theory. And to all the logic that she has in the world, like, if you're not sick, then like, how could you possibly give sickness to someone else? So she just doesn't understand why these doctors are trying to find her. Like, that is insane to her. Um, Whereas Dr. Soper is like from kind of this wealthy elite group who's able to go summer in places like Oyster Bay and has lots of money and formal education and also is just like not good at socializing with people. Like if you can imagine those like super, super bright, like book smart types of people who are really awesome and smart and cool, but just don't know how to like communicate things with others. Um, That's kind of where we're starting here. Uh, So it's not going to be a good mix. Dr. Soper goes on the hunt for Mary. Uh, He finds that she's currently the cook for a wealthy family in Manhattan that had just experienced a typhoid outbreak in which their young daughter had died. And uh, Dr. Soper shows up, finds that she is actually still working there, and he asks her for a sample of stool. And, like, just take a minute. Imagine that you're Mary Mallon. Dr. Soper is like a good 15 years younger than she is too. So like there's that angle, like this kind of young guy shows up being like, I know more about the world than you do. Please give me some poop. Like, (laughs) no. She's like, are you out of your daggone mind? So she actually confronts him, depending on the account of the story, with either a fork or a butcher's knife or whatever. But she comes at him with whatever is in the kitchen. Is like, get out of here. Leave my poop alone. <laughs> so it's pretty crazy. And it's important to contextualize, too, at this point in Mary's history, people just kind of start to tend to villainize her and they call her dumb for resisting doctors and health officials. But like, gotta empathize with Mary Mallon here. Um, Typhoid isn't totally understood, particularly among people who just don't have a formal education. We don't really know a lot about germs and antibodies. That's a new concept. Uh, Antibiotics don't exist yet. And it wasn't even until after the Civil War that doctors in America actually started to sterilize their surgical equipment like this is like this is like this guy is on another planet to her Mary thinks Dr. Soper is insane um but like literally we get to this point where he is chasing Mary around New York City trying to track her down from like places of employment to her apartment he's like following her friends and stuff it's creepy but essentially the health officials just don't do a good job explaining to Mary Mallon why she's spreading the disease, even though she doesn't feel sick. So I think that's where a lot of the resistance to this comes from, is that she just just does not understand what's happening. And no one is really 
making an effort to like kind of make her feel comfortable and sit down and be like, this is what's going on. Here's the evidence, this, that, and the other, like they would intrude on her and her workplace. And so at this point, uh, they do actually finally catch her and she is arrested and escorted to a hospital by literally five police officers. One woman carried away by five police officers. Gotta hand it to her. She did not go down without a fight. So they do arrest her. She's at a hospital. Eventually nature takes its course and she involuntarily does give a stool sample. And her sample does test positive for typhoid. And she's like, you must be lying to me. I'm not sick. How could I possibly have this highly infectious disease? Uh, And this defies all common knowledge, especially like from a person in her position. So as a professional cook, the high temperatures that are involved in the cooking that she does should kill off that bacteria. But she was also super now infamous, but before this pretty famous, for a specialty dish that she served in the summer times on Sunday afternoons. And that was a peach ice cream that was served with raw peaches and uncooked foods prepared with unwashed poopy hands is the perfect way to spread typhoid. So basically the the typhoid cells or the virus is actually being transmitted through frozen pieces of peaches. Is that basically what I'm what I'm gathering here? Uh, based on what I know from science, which is not much, uh, that sounds accurate. <laughs> wow. That's in, that's that's crazy. I mean, that's just it's crazy to think that that's again sort of I think of the scientific process and working through all of this. That's just it, it's kind of remarkable. But I, I think it does also speak to you. I think in in sort of telling this story that a lot of a lot of her privacy and her sort of personal space are obviously violated as as a part of this search. So. I guess it's fair to say that at this moment, Mary Mallon becomes "quote unquote" typhoid Mary. She sort of gets her her moniker at this point. Yeah. So this what you said made me think of two things. Um, first, like I'm never going to have a peach milkshake from Chick Fil A without thinking of this ever again, <laughs> and that's unfortunate because I look forward to that every year. <laughs> Come July, like that is ah, dang it. Mary Mallon. Uh, But second of all, um, we do get into these like these really interesting debates here between the relationship between individual rights and freedoms and privacy and the role of the central government in protecting the the common good and the common welfare. Mary is determined by public health officials to be a, quote, threat to society because she's going around cooking food with unwashed hands and carrying typhoid. And she was forcibly quarantined at a Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island in 1907. So she's forced to quarantine in this like pretty small house, but like, it's not too terrible. It's also the nurse's cottage for Riverside Hospital. Uh, so she was stuck there for three years. And I, I like to remember this when I start to complain about uh, like the last two months of social distancing and having to be at home, I'm like, Miss Rose, you could be Mary Mallon. You could be stuck in a hospital for three years with people calling you typhoid Mary in the press. It's not that bad. 
she's forced to give regular stool and urine samples, even though she never developed symptoms. So she's basically used as like a test subject over this time. The authorities also suggested removing her gallbladder. They thought that would be the source of the um, the typhoid virus. They thought that's where it was living. Um, but Mary, like she was already so reluctant to give a, a stool sample. She was definitely not about to let these guys open her up and remove an organ. So she heavily resisted that. And through this time, Mary continued to believe that it was impossible for her to actually have the disease. She just thought she was going through this like kind of weird fever dream. As, as someone who'd lived in these these poor immigrant communities in New York City, she'd seen a ton of people die from typhoid and they looked sick and she felt totally fine. So how could she be the source of the problem? Uh, but it was in 1908 when the American Medical Journal uh, they published an article about her as kind of this weird medical marvel. And this is where she got the moniker Typhoid Mary. And the press was like, wow, that's catchy. We're going to use this. And like she, this gets put into all the New York City newspapers. In 1909, she actually sued the New York City Department of Health because they're calling her Typhoid Mary, first of all. But second of all, she is like, how the heck did I get arrested and kidnapped and put in jail without a trial? I don't understand what's going on. But the court takes into account this question of what's the role of individual autonomy in the state's role over a public health crisis? And I think that's really interesting because America then, as it is now, is a culture that's very deeply rooted in personal liberty and takes individual freedom super seriously. Um, and this is something that we're absolutely seeing now in the midst of COVID-19 with uh, you know protests going on at different state capitals against the stay-at-home orders. Like I, I thought that was a really interesting parallel between you know, 1909 and 2019. Uh, but anyway, the judge actually did grant her this case. She won the case. Um, he agreed that she was arrested and imprisoned without due process, imprisoned at Riverside Hospital, but still she was there against her will. Uh, but the judge also ordered that she needed to stay under quarantine to protect against the spread of the disease. So things don't really go in her favor. On principle, she wins, but logistically, she's still stuck in a hospital. In 1910, uh, New York City elected a new health commissioner, and he was looking for some good press. So he actually signed an executive order to free her from Riverside Hospital under the promise or the provision that she had to stop cooking for a living and wash her daggum hands. Things are looking pretty good for Mary. She's like, all right, all right, I'm out of I'm out of Riverside. That's great. But also consider she's an unmarried immigrant woman living in New York City in, you know, 1910. And uh, she has to make a decent living. She doesn't have any other skills. And she's still super convinced that she doesn't actually have typhoid. And this whole thing was just a weird conspiracy. So basically, she's like, sure, sure, sure. No cooking. I won't cook. It's fine. It's good. Got it. It's good. Okay. So yeah, that's it. So I'm guessing then that this is this is not the last time we're going to hear about Typhoid Mary, and it's also not the last time that she spreads typhoid to families in New York City. Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that that's, that's sort of my prediction for where this goes from here. Five years later, uh, 1915, there's an outbreak of typhoid fever at the Sloan Maternity Hospital for Women in Manhattan. Uh, 25 were infected, mostly nurses, and two of them died. 
So we're like, oh, what a weird outbreak of typhoid. I mean, hospitals shouldn't be getting typhoid. Hmm. Uh, who's in the kitchen, Mr. Rickson? I'm going to go out on a limb and say Mary Mallon is working at the at the kitchen at the Sloan Hospital. Wow, so close. It was actually a woman named Mary Brown, which uh, upon closer inspection was Typhoid Mary. She had just changed her name <laughs> so she could get a job. Uh, yeah, so she very quickly goes back to cooking because, like, what else do you do to make a living in turn-of-the-century New York City as a single 40-year-old woman. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, she had actually taken a job as a laundress uh, immediately upon her release from North Brother Island, but that job didn't pay well and the work wasn't stable. Um, And, you know, like, it's not like it's 2019. You can't just go back to school and learn some new skills. Like, if you're... Unfortunately, if you're born in the particular environment that Mary was born in, you're kind of stuck with what you're born with. It's really hard to move above that. That's uh, unfortunately pretty typical for the time. So she does go back to cooking so that she can live. You know, and I think this is where history also, again, starts to kind of vilify her some more. Like, maybe she knew she shouldn't be going back to cooking. Maybe she didn't. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, she didn't really understand the science behind what was going on with her as an asymptomatic carrier. I think she is looking at the situation and being like, I'm not sick. Why are these crazy rich people telling me that I'm spreading this disease if I feel totally fine? Um, And she needs to be able to support herself financially. So she does go back to work thinking that she wouldn't really do anything. But unfortunately, it does lead to more damage. And she's quickly arrested again and returned again to North Brother Island where she lives the next 23 years of her life. It's during this time where she basically becomes like a science anomaly. She's seen as a test subject. Uh, Over the next 23 years, doctors took over 160 biological samples from her, mainly human waste. Uh, And it's all against her wishes. Uh, There's really not a lot of due process going on here, which is part of the ethical piece of this. But she's often shown off to journalists or interns as a specimen. And she's kind of exploited for her disease and her disability, which is really unfortunate. And it's it's pretty terrible. Uh, Her social interactions were super limited. She really only had contacts with doctors and research staff. And She was finally given a job to do at the hospital, which was to wash out bottles in the laboratory, but uh, she really wasn't allowed to kind of go out. So she basically lived for two decades in total isolation. And during this whole time, she refused to acknowledge that she had typhoid. She refused to have her gallbladder removed, which actually would have allowed her to return to a normal life. Um, The whole world at this time knew of her as Typhoid Mary, so I don't know if she would have actually found a job cooking. But she seemed to just really not have an idea of how she could carry this virus without showing symptoms and infect people that were weaker than her by accident. And um, ultimately, this this second quarantine for 23 years turns out to be a life sentence for Mary Mallon. She died in 1938 of pneumonia, not typhoid. Upon her death, they did remove her gallbladder and discovered that it was just chock full of live typhoid virus. (laughs) So gross. Anyway, um, but by the time of her death, over 400 other asymptomatic carriers had been identified in the United States, but she was the only one that received the same treatment. No one else was 
like forcibly jailed or quarantined or whatever. So I think that's what's pretty remarkable. And it, it's kind of like, I don't know, history has been super unkind to her. She's not remembered as Mary Mallon by her actual human name. She's remembered as typhoid Mary, someone who willingly went around spreading disease and evil, which is frankly not true. I think she was a poor Irish immigrant woman with no formal education, and she definitely experienced some prejudice that wasn't shown to other people like her. I guess my final question would be, after doing all of your research and learning more about her in in today's episode, do you personally consider her to be a villain of history or a victim of history? I, th- I think that's a really good question because, I mean, I mean, to the point of people like Dr. Soper and the other researchers, like they definitely in their own time just kind of saw her as this just dumb person who was being just totally disrespectful of others by going out in public and finding jobs as a cook and just spreading disease and only caring about themselves. But I also think she didn't really understand what was going on because she came from such a different background from people who would have had knowledge to what was actually happening. So I think it's really important. And I think, I don't know, as someone who studies history, I think Empathy is one of the best possible skills you could have, Um, whether it's putting yourself in a different time period and understanding the context to also just understanding just humanity and what it's like to kind of be in someone else's shoes and kind of see the other side of an argument. I can definitely see both sides, but I absolutely think she's a victim of history. (laughs) Um, She she has this legacy as, as what's called a super spreader of the disease. But her legacy and all of the research that was done from her her story, her experience has done a lot to prevent the spread of infectious diseases through quarantine measures. And I also think Mary was a victim of just kind of class and gender bias in her own time. I mean, she didn't understand how she could have this disease and the people exploiting her for research just kind of seemed to think of her as this crazy lady who didn't understand basic science, which when you think about it is ridiculous because germ theory was not common knowledge. And people of Mary's class just did not have access to the same education as people like Dr. Soper who could, you know, spend time in Oyster Bay. So I think there's definitely some clear discrimination at play here. Mary's story opens up a really important conversation about public health safety, and I, I hope you'll learn some good stuff today. This is a perfect example of a, of a story that links all of these different parts of history, right? It, the immigrant experience, class struggles of the rich versus the poor, public health, the history of, of science, and, and also I think what the, the challenges or the issues around balancing out public public health and public safety with individual rights and individual liberty. And it, it once again is an example of, of a figure in history that I didn't know really anything about, but has sort of opened my mind to any number of topics that we've talked about with our students and with our audience now over the last couple of episodes. So it's, it's, you know, it, as it's, it's emblematic of the title. Who knew? I just, I had no idea. So I think we have enough time maybe for one fact each for the fact off. So I know that this is one of our favorite parts, but I think we're going to have to probably narrow it down to one fact each. Okay. All right. All right. You want to go first? Sure. So 
We mentioned in the episode that Mary Mallon was quarantined at North Brother Island in the Bronx. And as Mrs. Allgood mentioned, there's a lot of really interesting New York geography about the story of Mary Mallon. So North Brother Island sits between the borough of the Bronx and Rikers Island in the East River of the New York metropolitan area. And Rikers Island is actually where New York City's main jail complex is today. North Brother Island was actually uninhabited until 1885. And that was when the city purchased it in order to build Riverside Hospital to quarantine patients with highly infectious diseases like typhoid. The hospital was also used in World War II to house war veterans returning home from combat, but the hospital was eventually closed in 1963, and it has been left in a state of decay. And you can actually find pictures of it online. It is super creepy. It has been completely overrun with bushes and vegetation, and it it really looks like something out of a horror movie. And you would think that they that the city of New York would destroy the complex, but they actually can't. It's off limits now to the public because it is now a protected bird sanctuary. So <laughs> truly, who knew about the history of North Brother Island? Dang, I had some cool facts and I actually wasn't going to pick this one until you said that. Um, Mary Mallon's grave is actually on North Brother Island. She was buried there as a typhoid patient. In the early 2000s, I believe, uh, the late great chef Anthony Bourdain actually snuck onto North Brother Island to visit Mary Mallon's grave. And he defended Mallon as uh, a kindred spirit, uh, someone else who was another cook and someone that would work when they were sick and you just do what you got to do and this, that, and the other. And he actually left his first ever chef's knife at her grave. And this is actually a huge deal uh, for anyone who works in the restaurant industry. Your first knife as a chef is like, has a lot of sentimental value. And I thought that was a really sweet, sweet gesture coming from one chef to another. I thought that was very kind. Well, Mrs. Alga, this has been, as I mentioned before, each one of these episodes is super fun and the research is is lots of fun to do. But I, I think this one is particularly, it's obviously very um, prescient with the times. And it's also, again, it's this wonderful avenue of so many elements of what we've been talking about, not just in our episodes, but over, over the course of the school year. So Thank you so much for doing the the heavy lifting of the of the research today. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, your turn next week, man. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. I'm going to have to you've you've really set the bar pretty high for me. I'm going to have to come up with a good with a good one for for our next episode. Well, good. I'm so excited. I'm I thank everyone for listening. I hope you learned something good today and I I hope you go cook something whether it's beefaroni or peach ice cream. You know, go for it. Wash your hands when you cook these food items. Please wash your dang hands. I'll never have a peach milkshake again. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, on behalf of Mrs. Allgood, this is Mr. Rickson signing off from this week's latest episode of Who Knew? A History Podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. Please leave us a review. I'd love to see some reviews and some feedback from folks. Again, you can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. But once again, I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you guys at the next episode. Take care. Bye!